Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I am Oren McIntyre. I can already see some people who are complaining about the thumbnail. I'm sorry that is doing psychic violence to you guys. I, I told the thumbnail guy, give me something that conveys a lot of degeneracy uh, that we're going to have to be talking against. And it, he definitely delivered here. So sorry if you if you saw the thumbnail there and uh, and got a little uh, shocked at it uh, it certainly conveyed what I asked, though I didn't think I understood quite the ramifications what he was going to put on there. But anyway, the point is today I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the critical role of moral prejudice. You see, recently on Twitter, we had this guy, Peter Singer. You've probably heard of him. Uh, maybe not. He, he's a bioethicist, which should always send you running for the hills. It's anytime someone is labeled as an ethicist, you should just immediately recognize they're probably the worst human being that's ever existed. Watch out for anyone with the title ethicist. Uh, but he also works as a professor over at uh, Princeton, I believe. Uh, and he's uh, he's an Australian philosopher, I think originally uh, from Australia. And he's known for a number of radical positions. Uh, one of them is famously... Uh, that uh, he was for emphasize basically said you get rid of children well into a couple of years because really they're they're not really human beings they don't really have feelings or souls or or anything like that they're, they're, they don't have any real uh you know viability because they can't uh, take care of themselves they don't have a any moral agency yet so you, you can probably just get rid of them so he's fa famous for those kind of takes and more recently, he came out on Twitter advertising this article, this journal article that is normalizing the idea of zoophilia. And, well, that's pretty much exactly what you would expect. It's the uh, romantic love of animals. It's, it's obviously quite horrible. Uh, and uh, he wanted to present this as a carefully considered and thoughtful piece inside this journal uh, there, there's this journal of uh, difficult ideas, you know, that that he's promoting, uh, that he's always looking to push the boundaries of ethics, those kind of things. And so I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about why it's so important to have moral boundaries, why it's so critical to have moral prejudices that exist before we have a philosophical interrogation of things. One, something that we like to think in kind of our modern age, is that everything is up for debate. Everything can be rationally deconstructed or defended. Marketplace of ideas resolves all of this stuff through rational interrogation of all of the issues. But I kind of want to make the case today that that's not the best way to understand the world. That actually that's a very dangerous way to understand how people interact with morality, how your society should be ordered. And there's really no, no better way to kind of demonstrate that than to walk through some of the ideas that are built into the things that people like Peter Singer are exploring or trying to normalize that kind of thing. Now, he might himself not be for this normalization. He might just have wanted to be an edgy boy uh, by by kind of tweeting out this paper and saying that this is a kind of, a kind of a reasonable defense of this idea. But that's not the point. You, you really need to focus on the process and how the process breaks down these moral barriers, because something we want to understand about moral barriers is that they are placed there for a reason and they're placed well ahead of the actual danger. There's a reason that we order our society the way that we do. And it's because the slippery slope is not some logical fallacy. It's not some 
weird thing that conservative Christians thought up in the 1980s. It's a very real and observable phenomenon. I think anyone who looks at the way our moral order has disintegrated before our eyes over the last few decades, they can start to see that linkage. And, and that's one of the problems that I think many even conservatives have is they often adopt the liberalism of 20 or 30 years ago, not understanding that that liberalism led them to the place that they're at today. So they're conservative by today's standards, but those standards are way more radical than they would have been just you know, a decade or two ago. And so they end up in the scenario where they're just defending the current policy position or the policy position of 30 years ago from the policy position of today, but they don't understand how these different things are connected to each other. And so today I wanted to dive a little bit into how they are connected. Now I'm going to show you a little bit of the journal article that he's talking about, though I promise we're not going to spend a ton of time on it because honestly, my whole point here is really that we don't need to. I'm going to explain a little more as to, as to why that is here in a second, but I do want to go ahead and talk a little bit about this for a moment. So when we look, someone said, I'm, I'm not going to fed posting or fed post or, and you can't make me, I appreciate your restraint, man. I really do. It's a, it's an, it's an honorable thing that you're able to restrain yourself that way. All right. So let's, let's take a look here. Uh, obviously uh, he's leading this paper. Uh, the, the person who wrote it is doing so pseudonymously. Uh, probably wise as to not put their name on the record for something oh so horrifically objectionable. Uh, but uh, but uh, anyway, they're making this case here, and uh, the whole the name of the article is Zoophilia is morally permissible. This is going to be the case here from the beginning. Now, again, I don't want to I don't want to go through this whole thing because my whole case is going to be we don't need a rational argument for this. This is this is this is, this is I'm going to make a rational argument. I understand the irony here. But I'm going to make a rational argument as to why no rational argument is required to have the prohibition against, um, you know, touching animals in a romantic way. So let, let's go ahead and take a look here at the beginning of, of what he's going to say. Uh, sex with animals is a powerful a social taboo that exposes its practitioners to the utmost indignation and stigma. Yes, yes, it does, as it should. Um, taboo is the correct word here. We need to understand the power of the taboo. The power of the taboo is that it is untouchable, that it is unassailable, that it is something that you do not go uh, near. You don't even suggest that this might be an option. And that's really powerful that there's a visceral gut reaction, a disgust mechanism reaction is what most people would, would see this as. Uh, and if, you, if you're familiar with the work of Jonathan Haidt and The Righteous Mind, this is something that conservatives in particular are in possession of, is, the, is this uh, disgust, this moral disgust. Uh, and so when, when you look at something that is heavily tabooed, you, have, you almost have a literally physical reaction to what is being suggested or approached, this kind of thing. And, and this is really critical because this is what protects us from the excesses of our own rationality. Now, look, rationality, I'm not making an argument against rationality. Rationality is incredibly valuable. It has uh, very important uses. We use it every day. Obviously, I, I run a YouTube channel where I exercise it on a pretty regular basis. I'm somebody who somebody spends a lot of time talking about political theory, philosophy, rational cases, and understanding for things. However, it is not the be-all and end-all. It is not the only way in which we uh, interact with society. In fact. We are far less rational 
than we would like to believe. Again, that is that is kind of the conclusion that Jonathan Haidt comes to uh, in The Righteous Mind when he's talking about the way that we kind of arrive at our moral opinions. We really end up uh, inheriting these opinions. We have these opinions uh, on kind of a, a, a chord level. And then we go back. He he's, uh, gives our rationality uh, the the uh, metaphor of the rider on the elephant. He says, our, our rationality is a rider on the elephant. The elephant goes where it wants, but the rider pretends later on that they kind of steered it that direction. And he gives our moral rationale kind of the same agency. You know, we, we have a proclivity for a certain type of morality, for a certain moral understanding of the world. When we interact with certain moral objects or, or you know, things inside the world, we approach them a certain way and then we kind of go back and, and post hoc rationalize the way that we interacted with them or the way that we responded to them. And so I think it's, it's for most of us, uh, we think of today ourselves as highly rational people. We're very advanced. Uh, maybe you think of yourself as progressive, maybe not if you're on my channel, but a lot of people think that they are. And so, you know, the, the, we, we think of ourselves as very advanced people, far more advanced than those that came before us. And because of that, we assume that our moral attitudes have also kind of evolved and advanced along with it, that it's based on this rationality that we're not subject to the animal pressures or the, you know, the religious dogmas or the things that came before us, but that we, we've kind of settled all of this out. But that's not really the case. And I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, again, take a look at this, this paper just, just for a second so we can understand kind of the danger of this idea. So if you look in here... Uh, you know, there's there's all these nice citations, uh, of course. Uh, you know, we want to make this look incredibly academic, uh, even though it's a work of horrific and disgusting degeneracy. Uh, but I want to just show you the headlines here. It's the ones that you're going to assume. So the key principles that this person is addressing when they look at the ethical issue, the first thing they do is they couch this, uh, this prohibition against this act, um, this morally reprehensible act, as something that is a you know, superstitious or is, is traditional, it, it's from uh, heavy social stigma, which came before that these different, uh, you know, these different cultures had. But then they do that. This is the twist. And you'll see this all the time uh, when we when we see people talking about this and trying to rationalize kind of terrible behavior. They'll say, but not all cultures, but not all cultures had this right. Not all cultures had this thing. And they'll they'll point to some obscure reference, or they'll, they'll they'll kind of cherry pick certain historical things to make it look like there is some you know uh, some level of acceptance that that's good or normal, uh, and and so they'll try to under undermine any traditional argument by saying, but well, somewhere there was a place where this this wasn't a tradition, and so therefore it's fine. Not really thinking about the fact that traditions are rooted in particular cultures. And so it's not enough to just look at a tradition in a moment and say, oh, well, yeah, for a moment they allowed this or this was OK. They, you're, you're not putting it in any kind of context. And so there's there's a wide amount of things that you're probably not accepting from that tradition. Uh, but you're just picking out of that tradition one moment and saying this is the way we should understand an issue. And that's always dangerous. That's why it's always dangerous to simply uh take a, a, a set of moral reasoning or a set of moral traditions, pull them out of the context in which they were arrived in, and then plug them into your current situation. This is a mistake that people make all the time. 
Uh, they do it a lot with with things like the Bible, Christianity. Uh, they do it a lot with with philosophy. They do it with all kinds of things. It's just ripping things out of their context. Give me the McNuggets, you know. Give me give me the bite sized pieces, uh, the things that I can put one, two, three on an index card, or or you know, uh, regurgitate out so I can sound uh, intelligent at a party. And that I'll just kind of project that onto my current situation, and that will explain kind of my rationale for what I'm doing here. So what does this author use to kind of justify? Well, two things they talk about. First, they talk about harm, right? Whether or not it harms the animal. Now, a definition of harm, of course, is finicky uh, because uh, the animal doesn't have that kind of agency, which we'll get to in a second. And so, you know, the things that cause it physical harm, uh, it may not know, of course, because it doesn't have that level of cognitive agency to figure out like what's happening to it. But that's not really the point. The po- I'm not here to debunk this argument. My point is that assuming that harm is the only is one of the only two principles involved is a failing. It's a complete failing of the human to understand the wider context of what they're doing. The question of whether or not I am harming somebody is not sufficient to answer the moral question. Unfortunately, in our current very liberal progressive society, this is one of them, right? This is one of the two. And, and here's the other one. I won't leave you hanging. The other one is, as you can imagine, the the uh, issue of consent. And literally, it's can the animal consent. Um, and the reason that these two are so dangerous, as th- this is kind of the one-two punch of the ultimate kind of liberal paradigm is harm and consent. Does it cause harm? And does it d- does the individual actors involve, are they able to give consent? And the answer is, if both of those are yes, then those people should be able to engage in whatever they want, or those animals and people should be able to engage in whatever they want. That's the argument, right? It's like, as long as those those are available, uh, then uh, then it's morally permissible. And that's a disaster. Now, you might think to yourself, well, how could he make the argument that an animal could consent? Like, that, that it's an animal. Like, pretty much by definition, that, that's going to be beyond it. It does not have the cognitive ability to grant that to a human being. But, of course, that's the beauty of this one-two uh, hunch of, of kind of moral relativism is harm and consent can really be redefined into anything because they're, again, not tr- they're not tied to a tradition. They're not built into a context. They're, they're pulled out. They're completely disassociated from any real evaluatory uh, rubric. And instead, uh, they, are, they are just putty in the hands of the people who want to go ahead and manipulate them, which is why they're so dangerous. And this is why I've made a, if I, you know, I, I guess I could say a, at this point, a famous meme of tapping the sign it's not rocket science right because if you if these are your only two standards for ethical behavior then you can redefine things like harm and consent down to justify pretty much everything and we're watching that happen right now where people are taking harm and consent and saying but when can you know teenagers or or children you know, figure these things out. When can they engage in this? When when do they have the rational agency to to do this? And they they make more and more excuses as to why you're able to devolve these things down over time. 
And that's incredibly dangerous because, you know, one of the people on the thumbnail is Jeffrey Epstein. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, if you can make the argument that, you know, the, the young women involved in Epstein's predation were actually rational actors capable of consent. And if you can say, well, what if this person, you know, is, is getting paid, you know, at the end of the day, uh, then, then, you know, there's no real harm because they're trading, you know, something now, maybe some pain or humiliation or, or unpleasant experience now for uh, some kind of profit or, or benefit later. And that, you know, that people do that all the time, you know, construction worker does that with his body, you know, that kind of thing. And so why shouldn't they be able to do that? In fact, Richard Hanania made this argument uh also on twitter basically is like well if, if these you know if these people if uh, epstein's clients or epstein's girls were consenting and uh they they were trading the harm for for a benefit later then really isn't that uh why is this so objectionable i don't get it right and that that's what's really important we need to understand the danger of deconstruction that we are fallen creatures and when you understand this about humans when you understand let me get this paper off the screen. I'm sorry. I don't want to keep subjecting you to, to any more of that. Uh, so, so as humans, we are fallen creatures. And fallen creatures uh, like us are going to look for any and every rationale as to why we should be able to do what we want. I mean, just think back to the Garden of Eden, right? Very simple standard. Just don't eat from this one tree. You can have anything else, anything else you want. But just this one tree. There's just one tree you can't eat from. And, uh, you know, and what, what's the first thing that happens? We're attacked through intellect. But did God really say, right? Is that really what he meant? Can't we deconstruct that standard a little bit? I mean, isn't there, isn't there some wiggle room there? Isn't some argumentation as to why we can do what we want and we don't have to stick to uh, kind of this understanding that's been set before us. I mean, you're literally in communion with Almighty God. Uh, it, the, the standard can't be more clear. Its source can't be more clear. And yet somehow we're still able to say to ourselves or we're still able to listen to a serpent tell us, you know, may, maybe that's not really the case. And we need to understand that about ourselves as human beings. Uh, purely rational actions uh, don't exist, <laughs> but even if they did, that doesn't make them good. That's not really a justification. It's not really the best way to understand kind of the moral framework in which we live and the way that we should run our society. We should interact with each other, those kind of things. And so that's why I'm here today to make the case against a purely rational morality because intellect has its limits. Again, it's, it's very valuable. We use it every day. I'm not here. Are you against rationality? A lot of people, you, you say one thing, say, you know, it, you know, you can't be rational about this one thing. And people are like, oh, well, if you can't be rational about this, then you're just attacking all rationality. And it's like, no, it doesn't have to be a totalizing system. Again, that's something that rationality likes to do. And it wants to be total. Uh, that, that's why we have this drive to constantly create these grand unifying systems. We don't want nuance. We don't want the ability for things to kind of be fluid. We want to lock them down and control every aspect of nature and, and, and morality and everything else so that we can kind of generate the world that we want. We want this perfect total control. So everything is under our grasp, but that's not the way the world actually works. We're not actually capable of doing that. Rationality is not capable of grasping everything in the world. Uh, that, that's why I'm not a materialist. That's why you shouldn't be a materialist. And so it's really important to think about 
where the limits are. And I think that people like Peter Singer kind of draw nice bright lines for us as to like why we, why we shouldn't go certain places, where we shouldn't be, why rationality is kind of insufficient as a justification for everything that we want to do. So let's think about moral prejudices for a second. Okay, what is a moral prejudice? Now, first, we need to think about the fact, of course, that the very scary word prejudice is attached to it. And we know that just you don't want to be prejudiced, guys. One thing, if there's one thing that's just the worst thing in the world, it's to have a prejudice, right? And you and you can't can't ever be prejudiced towards it. But actually, that, that's not how the world works. Actually, you're prejudiced all the time. Uh, you, you have particular assumptions that you make about the world, about everything you interact with, not just, you know, people, but, you know, every, every you know, whether or not a, a chair looks like it's going to be stable, whether or not a neighborhood looks like it's going to be safe, whether or not a piece of meat you're about to eat looks like it might get you sick. I mean, you have prejudices all the time and those prejudices are incredibly important. Many people would call them heuristics, right? They're, they're ways of, of uh, looking at the world and quickly answering questions without having to rationally evaluate everything that you're looking at. You, you might like to think of yourself as a rational person, but you cannot possibly rationally process every decision you need to make, every interaction you need to have all the time. You just can't do it. You don't have the capacity. It's not a real thing. And so instead, you have these prejudices. You have these, uh, you know, uh, these inbuilt responses to things. And there's many ways they co you come by them. Many of them are biological. You know, when you smell human refuse, you are you you physically walk away from it. You get you get ill. Uh, you don't like it. You have a, a visceral visceral reaction. You know, some people if they hear someone uh, uh, puke, right? Like they have that that reaction. Those reactions are there for a reason, right? You have those reactions because they're biological. Your body is telling you something. Your your genetic memory going back many, many, many centuries or, or far beyond that is telling you this is not something I want to be around. This is something I probably shouldn't like just leave on the floor in my house, right? Like I need to, uh, something compels me on a very fundamental level to remove this from my area or to remove myself from this area because I feel like this is not a good thing. And I can't, maybe I can't explain every reason why, but I just know that this is not something that I need to be around. This is very normal. And we don't just have this with biological, you know, preferences. Uh, we don't just have this with staying away from refuse or, you know, worrying about the dark or these kind of things. We also have this with morality. We have a, a very, again, that that uh, disgust mechanism that I talked about. And we worked really hard. We've worked very hard in our culture to devolve and, and, and dis, uh, disassemble most of our disgust mechanisms. We work to desensitize people to all kinds of things inside our society in an attempt to normalize all kinds of behavior. And that's what's happening here in this article. The Zoophilia article, it's trying to normalize things in the same way we've normalized a lot of other stuff. We give them a cuter name. You notice they're not using the normal name for something like this, which is bestiality. They're using a new name that might that might sound a little less harsh. You see the same thing like, like with maps, right? Uh, that this is something where they're trying to rebrand those who might be predatory to children under under something that would be less offensive or sound less hostile or less dangerous because they know that there's already like a revulsion attached to this thing. 
and they want to avoid it. And this is how the normalization process for so many things in our society has worked. You come up with a new name. First, you give it uh, something clinical so that you can kind of disentangle it from the moral. Try to make it sound scientific. Try to make it sound uh, like something that could be diagnosed. Uh, and then once it's been drawn out of the realm of the moral into the realm of the clinical, and you've you've kind of demystified the taboo, then once you've demystified that taboo and you've taken kind of that core mystical social pressure away, then you can start normalizing, right? You can start saying, well, there's treatment for this, or, or maybe it's not so bad. Maybe there are pieces of this we could better understand. And before you know it, this thing has moved from something that's untouchable that no one would have ever interacted with, that no one would have ever considered. And it moves into a place of normalization, acceptance, and eventually celebration. Uh, there's, a, there's a reason that uh, trans kids have become the soul of our nation, according to Joe Biden, right? It didn't take very long. Uh, that's because uh, that slippery slope was already very well greased by previous movements who had uh, gotten rid of these moral taboos, who'd gotten rid of these moral prejudices. By removing them, they made sure that there wasn't a lot of other resistance. And again, this is why some things might not seem so bad at the beginning, but still need to have a moral hedge put around them. I'd say, well, but really, is that a problem? Is that really going to lead to something else? I mean, can't we just allow this thing and, and then that'll be fine? And the answer has to be no, right? There have to be things that are not up for debate. They're not up for a question. Not because maybe the thing you're even staring at is that bad in and of itself, but because the 10 things behind it are really bad. And if you let this first thing go through, the next 10 things will be much, much worse. Again, we like to think that we are in control that we are, we are, we are, we are modern people with the ability to, you know, rationally decide where to draw that line. But we are not. And again, if you need any evidence, just look at the way we have slid down that slope in the last few decades. It's very clear that many of the things we were warned about that people in, you know, the religious right people in the 1980s who were mocked relentlessly through movies and TV shows and and songs and all this stuff saying hey this stuff's gonna happen this is gonna follow and in fact not only were they uh, they were wrong but only they were only wrong because they did not sufficiently understand how bad things would get they were right about things getting bad they just undersold um as wild as their assumptions looked back in the 1980s they vastly undersold the way that things would progress and so that those moral prejudices that didn't seem so important back in the 80s or really the 60s or before that, uh, the 60s is, is really the, the real uh, 50s, 60s or the real watershed moment, actually. Uh, but but the things that were discarded in those times didn't seem important. They didn't seem critical. They seemed like you could go ahead and get rid of them. I mean, really, how bad could it be? But once they were gone, the next step and the next step and the next step were easier. And again, this is not uh, th this is not a logical fallacy. This is just an observable fact. This is just pattern recognition. And we've had a real war on pattern recognition for, for a long time here. Just don't notice. Don't notice what comes next. Don't notice what happens after this. Don't notice how these things are connected. Just, just you know, we if we can isolate one thing at a time and we can rationally deconstruct one thing at a time and we can demystify and remove the taboo and get rid of the prejudice about one thing at a time, then the people won't notice the linkage between each one of these things. And that has been a critical part of the leftist project. It continues to be a critical part of the leftist project. And let's be honest, guys, this has been a critical part of the conservative project. too. It really has. I mean, if you look at the conservative project, there are a lot of things that conservatives 
have been willing to disassemble, especially when it comes to the use of things like free market economics. When we said, well, we don't really have to protect the family, right? People will just make choices on their own. We don't have to protect the economic ability of a man to provide for his entire family because really at the end of the day, I want people to be, be happier if everyone goes to work and they get more cheap Chinese stuff, right? And that over time has been something that the conservative movement has, has kind of paid their wages for. Because guess what? You know, guess who votes conservative? It's married people with kids. And guess who, what people aren't doing anymore? Getting married or having kids. Why? Well, because a lot of the policies that conservatives in theory, pushed, ended up disincentivizing families, ended up destroying critical core protections. A lot of the things that uh, the conservatives now celebrate about times like the 50s and 60s were themselves dismantling of prior moral prejudices and traditions, which protected against the kind of situation that they're in now. So the left has been doing this, but the right has also been complicit in many ways uh, with what has been going on. So. If not rationality, where do we get this stuff, right? So so a lot of people since the Enlightenment have wanted the human being to kind of be this, this disconnected, autonomous individual making rational decisions. They would just a priori, just before anything else, they would they would choose kind of where things would be and what they would be. They would they would consent to you know social contracts, or my favorite is John Rawls and his pre- original position. He's he's kind of the modern version of the liberal uh, you know, ideal where uh, the, the person goes into what's called the veil of ignorance and they, you know, they don't know who they're going to be in a society. They don't know what, what position they're going to hold, what families they're going to be in. And then from there, they can just make the rational decision about how the society should be run. But of course, the critical thing is that a human is never this. You are never this purely rational being. You are never this purely uh, you know, disconnected, rootless, autonomous individual capable of then rationally uh, making decisions. You only have rationality in the context of the society where you're born. You only make these decisions based on an understanding that is imparted to you through the world that you're involved in. Some people are going to call that postmodern. Sure. It's also true. This is how we understand the world around us. And that's critical when it comes to understanding the role that moral prejudices play. Okay. Moral prejudices are handed down to you through tradition. And tradition is usually a long set of encoded lessons that your ancestors learned at great cost. And a lot of people tend to, you know, treat religion as if, or tradition, though they are often the same thing. Uh, they're not just the same thing, but religion and tradition are are, are certainly hand in hand in this. Uh, they are uh, they are moving this direction together because they are encoding lessons that have been learned at great cost. And a lot of people, uh, you know, discard these things because they say, "Well, it's not making our rational case. It's not laying things out." Well, one of the things that you're kind of understanding when you embrace a tradition is that you actually are incapable of rationally arriving at every necessary understanding of the world. I've used this example before, but I'll use it again because I think it's very instructive. You know, uh, it, I, I was a teacher uh, and I've worked, you know, uh, teaching children. And when you teach a child, uh, you know, you have to, uh, every parent knows this for sure. 
uh, when when you're when we're teaching a child, you have to teach them low resolution versions of things that aren't strictly true, but that they need to understand so that later on they can understand higher resolution versions of the same thing. So, for instance, um, really, you, you, your child needs to understand, say, uh, that your country is something to be proud of. So America is good is something you might treat, teach a child young so they can properly function. Um, and that's a low resolution version of something. America is more complicated. It's not just good. It's done bad things. It's done good things. It's done necessary things. It's made mistakes. It's got some things about it that are failures, some things that are successes. But for us to have a cohesive society and for society to work together and for that child to live well in the society, they need to believe that there's something positive in particular about their nation. And so America Good is a low resolution version of things that they need to do. They need to love their country. Now, later on, as they get older, ideally, if things are working properly, they get a higher resolution version of this where like. America is complex, but overall still important and still something that they need to be a part of and care about. But you can't get to that high resolution version until you've gone through the low resolution version. Same thing with like the concept of God, you know, something that you need early on because it's true and it helps you to understand the world around you. But most people are taught a very low resolution version of that before later on, hopefully, again, unfortunately, a lot of people don't make this journey. But eventually learning that there's a far more complex reality that is connected to the thing that they learned previously. This is true of relig of tradition too. However, you can never actually fully understand the importance of the tradition. See, uh, G.K. Chesterton called tradition the democracy of the dead. And what he's saying there is that the people that came before you sacrificed in real and meaningful ways so that you could have the life that you have now. And that you're dependent on them just because they're not around at any given moment doesn't mean that you are not dependent on the many many generations that came before you they built the society you live in they built the culture you live in they built the wealth you have they built the you know the, the medical systems they built the moral systems they built the world around you and made it run and so they have a very real input into the way you live your life even though they're dead because their influence is so extreme on the way you exist now, the way you understand the world. And as one person, we cannot grasp, even if we're incredibly smart, very rational, hyper-rational, we cannot understand every bit of wisdom that was encoded by you know, thousands or millions of people into this tradition and transferred to us in ways that we can understand it. Because tradition often takes very complex things and boils down them down into ways that we can understand them and we can implement them in our real life. And again, no matter how intelligent you think you are, no matter how learned you might be, you will never truly understand everything involved in a tradition. If you're really smart, you may be able to grasp a piece of it, a part of it. You might be able to you know, expand on that and, and, and do important things with it. But you as an individual are never outside of your tradition. You are never separated from it entirely. You are never free from its influence. You are never objective in the sense most people be. There is truth, but that truth is always in the context of a tradition. And that is really critical to understand. So you might say, Oren, okay, so there's a tradition. I get it. And that should inform my moral prejudices, my, my approaches to things. 
but things change over time. Things get better, right? We don't want to just be stuck in tradition for all time. What if a tradition tells us to do something that worked at one moment and then it doesn't work at another moment because the world changes and then like we all die out because we got stuck on tradition? Well, that's actually a really good question. That's a really good point. Uh, you know, hypothetical person who's asking me these things. And the, the answer to that is you're right. We do need to update traditions. Traditions are not just static things. What makes a tradition valuable is not that it's written down somewhere. Writing it down somewhere might help to transmit it, but there are a lot of people who have made the case, and I think they're right, Oswald Spengler is one of them, uh, who I'm quite a fan of, uh, that have said that once you have to write these things down to transmit them, they've already lost some of their power. Joseph Demaster also said this, that, that when you have to transfer these things academically uh, instead of through your lived experience of, you know, father to son, mother to daughter, you know, grandmother to grandchild. Uh, when you're no longer passing these things down through actual lived action and you have to only pass them down academically, they've actually lost something. So, so while we might think, oh, well, traditions are things you write down in books. Actually, they're not. What makes them powerful is that they aren't written down in books. They might get written down in books. They might reinforce them or help them to spread somewhere at some point. But it's the lived experience that really matters. It's the it's the embodiment that makes tradition more true than what we write down. And that's really critical. Tradition is more true than the things we write down about tradition because it's actually lived out. It's actually experienced. It's road tested. OK, again, as somebody who works a lot in, in the world of the mind, somebody who talks a lot about theory and philosophy, and all these things, I can tell you that the number one failure of of uh, and the temptation of people including even me who knows this is is a bad thing the number one failure and temptation of the academic of the scholar of the person who's in the life of the mind is to is to disassociate ideology and theory from practical action and to think that ideology and theory can completely dictate that action that is a, that is a failure that is that is a, if you have done that if you know there's a reason they give it the the ivory tower imagery right because it's so far and aloof above that it doesn't actually make contact with the world the theories don't really play out and we all know this right we've all seen this we're all familiar with these academic theories that don't play out in real life and this is why our society is such a mess right now because we're this incredibly rational ideology driven society that is very removed from the practical from the things that really make day-to-day -day life happen right and so th that temptation is always there to to kind of separate ideology and theory away from what is grounded but that's the beautiful thing about real tradition is it's hyper grounded because it, it is it is lived out it is carried from one generation to the next in the most direct way possible and that means that traditions are alive they are changing. They are alterable. However, the key for traditions to be altered is, again, that lived experience. For something to alter a tradition, it has to work over and over again. It can't, it, it's not, you don't just radically change your tradition inside a few years, the way that you like snap change something in science, uh, if, if you need to. There's, there's a very slow method that this usually happens in when it comes to traditions and it has and, and the most important thing is its viability it has to re, uh, interact with the real world in a in such a valuable way over multiple 
iterations, multiple generations, that it then gets adopted in slowly but surely the, the, into the tradition. So tradition doesn't mean things never change. It doesn't mean things aren't never reevaluated. It doesn't mean no progress is made. And so when I say that you need to base your understanding of morality on traditions and moral prejudices, I'm not saying that you can't evaluate things. I'm not saying that you can't think about things. I'm not saying that things can't be advanced, that things can't progress. You know, terrible, terrible usage of the word bear, but the one that was at hand. Uh, it, it's, about, it's about understanding that there are these eternal truths that are only achieved through being. They can't be nailed down in our rationality. They can't be uh, put down in a math problem or explained on a spreadsheet. Uh, they can't even be put down in texts of moral philosophy sometimes. They have to be lived. They have to be real. And they have to survive multiple iterations in the real world before they can kind of prove their mettle. And we are only one person in a great chain and we cannot understand every piece of that chain. We cannot grasp every part of it. And so when we look to what we should do, when we look at how we should interact with a moral issue, when we look at the way that we should consider something, we need to put it in that context and understand, yes, we still make decisions. We are still an individual. We do have rational faculties. We are evaluating things. All of those things are true. I'm not saying abandon all that stuff. But we need to put it inside the context of the tradition and humble ourselves and say, actually, that stuff is important. And it is, we are connected to it, whether we like it or not. And the people who came before us had wisdom. We are not, we are not just because we happen to be the most recent human. Uh, C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. The idea that you just happen to be live at the current moment, and therefore you're the most intelligent thing. And all ideas that came before you are, are somehow lesser. That is not the case. There, there are often the people who came before us are wiser than we are today. And so, and so that doesn't mean never change. It doesn't mean never evaluate. It doesn't mean never test or try things out. It doesn't mean never make any kind of forward you know, uh, uh, motion with your culture. It just means that these things are slower and they're more organic and they're closer to the ground. And they're they're less involved in heady ideological, uh, you know, exploration, and more involved in grounded, lived understanding. And when we do that, we're far less likely to write stupid things like zoophilia is okay, because we have these moral prejudices that have been passed down from a powerful tradition with the wisdom of many, many, many generations of ancestors. And the reason that those things have been venerated in pretty much every culture is because they're real and they work and they're true. And we should, as people who want to succeed, want to live good lives, uh, want to honor kind of the things that we've been given, we should look at those traditions and we should put those before necessarily our own, you know, desires that we are rationalizing through, you know, through our current understanding of the world. Just remembering that we are not always the most intelligent people. We are not always uh, the most rational people. And that we should, we should maybe take a moment to think about all the people who came before us and the reason that the things that they understood have traveled to us to the day. All right, guys. So just wanted to talk about that a little bit. Uh, but let's go ahead and head over to our questions of the people. Uh, Mint 20 for $5. 
the left thrives on dialectics. If you're debating something against them, you're already in the process of losing. Yes. So this is critical. This is so important. This is, I'm, I don't know. I might try to, I might try to write much more on this, but I've done, I've done videos on this. I, I did uh, uh, the uh, Prudentialist and I, I believe it was the Prudentialist and I uh, read Nick Land's point about this, which is, is critical. Every disagreement is an opportunity to rule politics. Uh, dialectics are inherently left wing. They move you to the left. This is very difficult for conservatives because they want to uh, participate in the political process. However, that is why they are always losing because the political process is inherently left wing. I know that. I know that blue, you know, a lot of people are like, what, what does that even mean? What are we supposed to do? Please go back and watch the episode. I don't have time to, <laughs> to, to, to recap that whole hour's worth of work. But the point is that, yes, I've, I've said this before, uh, Menton, you're absolutely right. To, to debate many issues is to lose them. If you want an example, just look like at can men become women? When they couldn't, when that was not a debate, that was a right-wing position, a right-wing truth, an axiom on which society was based, and there was no political power for the left there. Now that that has become an issue that they can debate, that is up for debate, the left has unlocked all kinds of political energy and all kinds of political power by tearing apart that thing that was once a bedrock, bedrock foundation of tradition and understanding of the world around us. That's how the left works. You need to understand this. It's not just, it's not just that you know wrong or evil. It's that there's a real mechanical problem that the right does not grapple with. And uh, that, that uh, Creeper Weirdo here for $2. I'm not that Mr. Warren. You can't make me. I, again, I appreciate your discipline, man. Well done. Uh, Skeptical Panda here for $5. Thesis for today. The only way to win is not to play their game. I tend to agree. It's clear that the debate with leftist snakes is a waste of time. Yeah. And, and to be clear, guys, again, this does not mean that there are no rational discussions had. That does not mean that rationality just goes out the window. But you need to understand that it is one tool. This is something I respect about Chris Rufo. Chris and I, uh, you know, disagree on some things tactically. But in general, Chris understands this in a way that no other conservative activist does. And they will say this directly. They'll say, if you look at the history of the last, you know, couple decades of American politics, and you think the message is that rational dis- debate wins politics, then we exist in alternate universes. Because that is just observably not true. And if that's the case, then even if you might like to think of yourself as a rational person or you want to think as, of the right as the, the people who care about facts before your feelings or whatever, that's nice, but it's a losing strategy. And so if you want to win, you need to adopt a winning strategy. And that means uh, actually looking at what's happening. It means not engaging in every bit of bait that the left throws in front of you and thinking that if you could just wrestle them to the ground with, uh, with you know facts, that you're going to win because that's not actually how it works. Creeper Weirdo for $2, which reminds me of uh, Dubai for some reason. I'm not sure why, but thank you, sir. Uh, Mint 20 here for $10. In most cases, uh, reason is just the defense lawyer for what you're, uh, you already want to do. Uh, firm moral boundaries are needed because one uh, reason, uh, because one can reason themselves into or out of anything. And yeah, I generally agree, right? Again, that doesn't mean that reason isn't entirely detached from reality or that there aren't reasonable cases made for uh, moral truth, or that moral truth isn't determinable. This is not a, this is not an argument for moral relativity. But what it is, is an admission that humans are not the hyper-rational agents that we want to pretend that they are, 
uh, that they are governed by things other than their rationality. That even if you could arrive at all the all the rational arguments that you want, which you can't, uh, that it would still be insufficient for most of society because it's not going to get there. And that instead you need firm moral boundaries because people will do things like, you know, try to normalize zoophilia if you don't. Mint 20 here following up again. Thank you very much. The slippery slipper means the undefeated champion of the 21st century. Yes. One of my favorite things to tweet for a reason because it is true. Uh, Florida Henry here for $10. I just came to the conclusion. If you rewind to 1980s and give Republicans hundred percent economic control, you'd be in the exact same spot today with corporations pushing this insanity. Yes. That is a very important realization. Uh, sorry guys, but uh, the, the, the economic policies of the right have consequences. Now this doesn't mean that uh, you know you need to implement communism or something, but it does mean that you need to understand uh, that there are things more important than individual economic uh, progress. I'm going to be talking about this a lot here. Um, Nick Land has a lot to say on the inevitability of capital and capital escape and what it means for societies. I'm going to be delving deeper into that um, here in the next few weeks. Uh, so you, you can look for that. Uh, but I, I think you're right, Florida Henry, that uh, that, uh, you know, the Republican Party has taken many actions uh, that have disassembled uh, the family just as well as the Democratic Party has. And uh, until it realizes that uh, things will only get worse. Uh, Paladin YYZ for forty one dollars. Thank you very much, man. Very generous. I appreciate that. Awesome show, Oren. I actually turned this, uh, the the Savage down to nine. Your thoughts on the headbanger community can do to squash the advance of the total stake rock harder, ride freer. Yeah. So obviously for people who can't tell from my wall art, uh, I'm a fan of, uh, of metal. Um, and, uh, particularly I enjoy the band sabotage, which is not, uh, n- not as well known by many, but actually you've all heard sabotage before, whether you realize it or not, uh, because they became the trans Siberian orchestra and you've probably heard, uh, their rendition of Carol of the bells. Uh, it's, I think it's called Sarajevo, uh, but um, but they uh, were, were a very good uh, kind of proto-thrash metal band before that, uh, but I'm a big fan. Uh, I don't know if they, if the heavy metal community uh, will be making any, uh, any advances against the total state, but I certainly enjoy the music, at least especially when I'm lifting. Uh, it's, it's excellent music to lift weights to. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Homerus Lupercal, Warmaster of Evergreen Terrace for $4.99. Man, I'm glad that I am familiar with Warhammer, so I can actually read that. This is why uh, this is why religion is so fundamental to the state. Religion comes with hard moral boundaries because divine edict usually is not debatable. Yeah, and I think if you're, you know, if you wanna if you wanna understand this, uh, I'm actually rereading uh Gatano Masca and the ruling elite. There's a chapter uh, that I'm working through now where he talks about uh, about uh, the political, uh, I can't remember the name of it all of a sudden. Uh, but anyway, he talks about the necessity of kind of religion to have uh, that effect with, with the state political formula. I don't know why my, my brain completely uh, blanked out there. Uh, but also I think really a really good important book for this is, uh, is The Ancient City by Collange. And uh, that, that book is really good because it, it talks about how critical religion was to every part of the founding of Greek and Roman uh, society, how we, it's hard for us to even understand the level of religiosity 
that we wove itself through every action because it's the same way we weave our understanding of rationality of everything, uh, which doesn't make us more rational people, ironically. But the but the point is, they did it the same way, but with religion and how critical it was to every foundation. And and those things were not debatable because, like you said, uh, Homer's they were they were foundational to everything they, for the understanding of morality, for the understanding of society. They made sure that society perpetuated itself in critical ways. And so if you want to understand that, I think that book is a really excellent read. I highly suggest it. Oh, we've got one more that came in here. Uh, Joshua BB for $9.99. Thank you very much. The purpose of life for humans is to procreate and make the world better or at least not worse. Anything that goes against that is uh, is bad. All moral decisions can be determined through this lens. Well, that's nice and all, but uh, so you, you've kind of um, you've kind of created a problem for yourself because make the world better and not worse. Okay, well, what does that mean, right? Uh, that that sounds nice, but you you have to contextualize that, uh, and to contextualize that, you actually need a tradition. You need a you need a particular people, particular society, because the things that are good for people are not universal. Uh, the things that are good for people aren't even universal inside a society. Uh, some people can handle their liquor, some can't. Some people were made to have large families, some aren't. Some people, you know, th there's a general, uh, you know, telos towards like what the good human is, but that has to be contextualized, I think, again, in the society, in, in the culture. It has to be specific. You can't just say, well, everybody should just do what makes the world better. That's uh, that's kind of the 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 Reddit atheist thing. Like, just be kind, man. Just, be, just don't be a jerk. You know that that's not a real morality. It never ends up doing well. Uh, uh, CB here uh, for ten dollars. Thank you very much. What are you reading right now? Uh, so, like I just said, I'm rereading uh, the uh, the ruling class by Gatano Mosca. I'm a rereader, guys. Um, I, you know, especially with these really complicated books. I mean, I start taking notes. I make videos about this stuff. I understand it a decent amount, but there's so much, there's so much layered in these really complex books that I find when I go back over and over again, it's, it's really important. And so I just reread that, or I'm rereading that. I just reread the problem of pain by CS Lewis, uh, which I think is a really great book. Uh, I just reread, I'm rereading uh, out of the, uh, or sorry, Pelindra, uh, which is the first book in his, um, or no, out of the silent planet is the one I'm reading. Pelindra is the second, uh, uh, book in that series. Uh, Out of the Silent Planet is the first book in his uh, sci-fi series. And so uh, those are the things that I am reading right now. All right, guys. Well, I think I got through all of your questions. Thank you so much for coming by. Hopefully we have dispelled all of the terrible beliefs of Peter Singer and none of you will ever uh, give them any credence. Uh, so <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Of course, if this is your first time coming by the channel, please make sure you go ahead and subscribe. And if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, you can go ahead and subscribe to the Orin McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure you do that, guys. Do that, guys. I know, you know, I, I'm mowing the lawn. I'm working out. I'm cleaning up around the house. Those things. I love to have, you know, podcasts and things on. And, uh, you know, if, if it's on YouTube, I know sometimes, like, you got to deal with the screen and everything. I mean, I'm mostly just talking. So check it. Check out that podcast. I'm sure you'll appreciate it. Thank you for coming by, guys. And as always, I will talk to you next time.